Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Mark chapter 6, starting in 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miracles, miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the King said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his gifts, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately, the king set an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, and brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. God, we give you thanks for your word, which is a light into our feet, into our path, which leads us even through the valley of death. I pray that you would use these words in this passage to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our vision and our courage to follow you no matter come what may. I pray that you do this by the power of your spirit working through your word this morning. Amen. You know, all, all of us in this room have likely eaten a fortune cookie or two or three in my case. And even if you've never had a fortune cookie in your life, you probably know what it is, right? You, you have your American Chinese food, you're feeling a little gross and bad about yourself. And so you grab this cookie thinking it'll make your life better. And you break it open and then you, you 
pull that piece of paper out and it says, you know, something like, there's a big decision coming in your life. Choose wisely. Or you will have many friends around you in the coming days. Kind of vague fortunes like this. Uh, you, you know the sort. Uh, but you know what you never find in a fortune cookie? Something that says tomorrow will bring you toil and death. <laughs> you never find bad fortunes in a fortune cookie. Why? Because no one wants to be told that their future is going to be hard, full of despair. Uh, no one would eat that cookie. Uh, we want our fortunes to be good, to be filled with happiness and ease. We want to be told that our life is going to be full of happiness and ease. And, you know, in essence, this is what we see happening here. It's not a fortune cookie, if you can tell. But it's prophetic about what life will look like for those who follow Christ. Our passage this morning comes in another one of Mark's sandwiched narratives. We've seen this before where he begins a story inserts another story and then goes back to the story that he started. And here we find this, but it's a strange spot for this narrative about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had already been dead, we find out. And for some reason, when Mark's putting together this gospel, he decides to insert it right here, right after Jesus had sent the disciples. He puts this here. So why does he put it here? One of the things he's doing is he's very purposefully showing the disciples and showing the reader of this account, us, that following Jesus is a costly thing. Following Jesus is a costly thing. It brings opposition in your life. And very often, following Jesus is the thing that actually causes your suffering, even your death. Who doesn't want to hear that news this morning that following Jesus will bring you suffering and death in your life? Right? We want fortune cookie Jesus. We want to be told that our life is going to be easy when we follow Jesus. And this morning what we learn is the normative life for the follow of Jesus is actually hard. Maybe you're experiencing this right now. Maybe you've experienced it in the past. This doesn't mean that we don't have joy. This doesn't mean that we're not joyful, but it means that life is not easy. When you live in this world proclaiming a counter kingdom, uh, the world and the kingdom that we proclaim that to fights back. It doesn't go into the night quietly. So what do we do with this reality? How do we respond to this in our lives? As one person puts it, what do we do when Jesus gets you beheaded? Passages like this are challenging, and oftentimes I think we, we avoid them. We kind of read quickly past them, yep, John the Baptist is dead, and we move on to the next thing without even thinking about it. But this is one of the reasons why we preach the books of the Bible, is that I don't get to choose what we preach about you know, week in and week out. We preach the next passage, even the hard parts, even the parts that I don't really want to talk about, I still have to, because we're called to be faithful to what, what Scripture says, and uh, and. And even though we are engaging in a difficult topic this morning, I think by the end we're going to find actually great comfort in this. That the cost of discipleship, as Bonhoeffer puts it, is more than worth what we gain in the end. And so as we ask this question, what is this cost of of following Jesus this morning? A lot of my work uh, overlaps uh, the work of one pastor, Robert Cunningham, who is excellent on this passage and offers great insight. So I'll be borrowing some of his work. But the question we're asking in this morning is this, what is the cost of following Jesus? Well, the first thing we find is this, 
that following Jesus costs you conflict. Following Jesus costs you conflict. To follow Jesus means that you will have conflict in your life. Great news, right? It's what everyone wants to hear. Everyone here loves conflict, don't we? Don't we love having conflict with people? No, of course not. Most of us, we do everything to avoid conflict in our lives. Uh, And here what we find is that conflict is right where following Jesus takes us. I mean, verse 14 begins for us by telling us that the fame of Jesus had spread, right? We, we heard the story of the disciples are going out two by two, proclaiming the kingdom. And it says now king, king, even King Herod has heard of it. Jesus' name is becoming known. And King Herod is the son of Herod the Great, the same Herod who actually sought to have Jesus killed when he was born. And he's a, he's a Jewish man, a Jewish leader. And the fame of Jesus had even reached his ears. And so the people around him, they began to speculate, who is this Jesus character? Who is this man that we're hearing about? Is it John the Baptist? Is it, is it Elijah? Is it a prophet from old? And you know, one of the things to keep in mind is that uh, the Jewish people hadn't heard a prophet for a few hundred years before John the Baptist came on the scene. So for a few hundred years, they've had silence. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist kind of wanders out of the desert and starts doing prophetic things. And it was a bit unusual. It was something they weren't weren't expecting. And then right after him, you get Jesus coming along doing more prophetic things. And so they're confused by this, trying to come to grips with what exactly is happening. And as they're kind of talking about this, King Herod concludes in verse 16 that it must be John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist. Well, why does he think it's John the Baptist? And then we kind of get this flashback where verse 17 begins to answer this question. And it says, for it, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So what we have here is Herod had taken his brother's wife from him. Not after his brother had died in an honorable way, but actually Herodias divorced Philip and then got married to Herod. And John the Baptist went and confronted Herod about this. In verse 18, we, we see this. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So one question that this begs is, why does John think to go to and confront King Herod about this? Why is it John's place to go tell King Herod who he can and can't marry? Why does he care about what Herod does? Well, because Herod is, actually, is the leader of the people. And he's a Jewish man bound to Jewish law. He wasn't a Gentile. He was Jewish. And so John the Baptist was confronting the leader of the people saying, this is not how we're supposed to live. And one of the things about John the Baptist is he actually always was confronting the leaders. Regular people he was actually really kind to. It was the leaders that he said, you brood of vipers to. He didn't hold back. Uh, He didn't confront these people because it was fun, uh, but because following Christ led him to do this. This was his role. He was called to speak the truth of Scripture, even when, especially when the leaders who were supposed to uphold the law and truth were breaking it. Uh, One commentator points out that, that if there's one thing that you can't do in culture today, it's what John's doing right here, right? You can't pass judgment on somebody and then tell everyone about the judgment that you're passing. It's the one thing a tolerant culture is intolerant of. And John steps right into it, not holding back, holding Herod accountable to the law. 
And here we find kind of the root of the conflict is a conflict between kingdoms. As James 4, 4 puts it, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. What we see here is there's two kingdoms at play. And when they confront each other, there's conflict. When the laws of God conflict with the, the sin of man, there's conflict. If you follow Jesus, you also will have conflict because you are followers of another kingdom. A kingdom that is coming into the world as it is in heaven, but is not here fully yet. It's inevitable for the Christian that this will cause conflict for you in your life. I mean, it's the, actually the absence of conflict in your life that should cause you to stop and wonder. Now, in speaking of conflict and the necessity of conflict in our lives, I think it's important to say this, that this doesn't mean that all the conflict in your life is good and because of following Jesus. This also doesn't mean that you should seek conflict out. Uh, I mean, if I'm mean and a jerk to my wife in my home, I have conflict with her, but it's not because of the gospel. It's because of me, right? Uh, I think it's easy sometimes to think that you're being persecuted when really you're just being a jerk to somebody. Uh, and as you encounter conflict, you actually need to ask the question, is it the gospel that's offending this person or is it me? Are we speaking and confronting the world with truth and love, or are we full of arrogance and pride as we're engaging people? Are people rejecting us because of the gospel, or because we have no love in our hearts when we share the truth? Uh, because we're just seeking out conflict for the sake of conflict. And, you know, Paul himself tells his people not to be quarrelsome, to live at peace in this world. Conflict will find you. We don't need to seek it out and to try to find it. And here, the conflict that John the Baptist is, happen is having is actually because of the truth, not because John the Baptist is just being rude. I mean, you can actually see it in how King Herod responds to John by respecting him. He respects John and protects him from dying. We see this here in verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and he heard him gladly. Which is kind of wild, even though... Uh, King Herod didn't like what John the Baptist was saying. He heard him gladly. He was still willing to listen. It says that there was something different about the way that John was even speaking to him. The conflict here wasn't because of John's attitude or arrogance or pride. Because It wasn't because he was out of line. It, it was because of his message. Right At the end of the day, they hated God's law. And so we have to ask, if there's conflict in your life, why is there conflict? I said, if, if you find no conflict at all in your life, it can mean either you aren't following Jesus or you're only following Jesus in subcultures where everyone around you is exactly the same. I mean, Jesus says in Luke 6, to beware when all men speak well of you. Meaning if we try to carve a conflict-free life, a people-pleasing life in this world, our aim is different than the aim of Jesus because following Jesus will lead you into conflict. So the first question we, we think about with the cost of discipleship is this, is there conflict in your life? Following Jesus into the world will, will cost you. It'll cost you conflict. As we follow Jesus, we don't seek it, but as you follow Jesus, it will, it will come. And Jesus tells us conflict will happen. It doesn't mean every moment of your day is going to be full of conflict and anxiety. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't have peace and joy, but it, it means that the kingdom you have submitted yourself to with King Jesus is actually contrary to the kingdom of this world, and that will cause tension in your life. 
But not only is it going to cost us conflict, but the second thing we're going to cost that we're going to find is that it's going to cost you your very life. The second thing we see here is that following Jesus costs you your life. At the end of this passage, what we read is that John the Baptist actually loses his head. It costs him his life. But before we get there, we see in verse 21 that he's throwing a birthday party. Herod is having this birthday party. His wife's daughter, right, his, his niece, uh, comes and dances before him in this party. And John the Baptist makes this foolish vow to give her whatever she asks. And then we see that she runs to her mother and she responds without hesitation, right, the head of John the Baptist. She knew exactly what she wanted. She wanted that man dead. She hated him. He challenged her. He followed the law of God. He followed Jesus, and, and she hated him for that. And so although the king, it says, he didn't want to kill John, he didn't, he didn't want to back out of his vow either. And so the irony is that without hesitation, it says immediately he sends the executioner to go get John's head. Immediately he sends John to go get John's head. And we find the executioner going and doing the deed beheading John the Baptist. In this one gruesome act, you see John's head being brought forward on a platter to the girl, and then the girl brings it to the mother. Following Jesus cost John his life. Following Jesus put his head on a platter. And one of the questions I think about when I read this kind of thing is, why, why didn't Jesus stop this? Jesus could have rescued him from prison. Why didn't Jesus rescue him from prison? He rescues other people. He's brought other people back from the dead. Why not help out his, his friend John? I mean, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells the crowd of people that John is the greatest man who's ever been born. you think he would want to keep that guy around a little while longer. He's been killed in his prime. And yet Jesus doesn't. He doesn't break him out of prison. He doesn't stop the executioner. He lets the axe fall. In this great irony, we find that the Jesus who equipped and sent the disciples is the same one who gets his followers beheaded, too. And this is not just true of John the Baptist, but this is a story of the disciples who eventually all actually meet a grisly end. This is a story of the early church, right, hunted down. This is a story of the church in Rome who's first reading this gospel account from the catacombs beneath the city, being hunted down being fed the lions, being burned on crosses. This is the story of actually much of the church right now still. More people being persecuted now than ever before. Christians gathering to worship like we are at the risk of losing their lives. What do we do with this Jesus? What do we do with the Jesus that gets you beheaded? I think Hebrews 11 actually offers us some interesting insight to this topic. Hebrews 11, starting verse 32, reads this. <clears throat> but more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, this is an awesome list, right? Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Amazing list of people who've, what they've reward of those who've walked by faith. And then we get this without hesitation, 
Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. I don't like the second half of that list, right? Why does Jesus deliver some from the mouth of lions and deliver others to the mouth of lions? At the end of the day, I can't tell you why he does it. But I can tell you it isn't because he doesn't love you. It isn't because he doesn't care for you. It isn't because he's disappointed in you. Right? The greatest man who ever lived got his head on a platter. What would that mean for us? The disciples who knew Jesus, who walked with him, lost their lives. What will that mean for you, for me? The question that is being begged to ask of you is this. When is the last time that following Jesus cost you anything? When is the last time that following Jesus cost you anything? Uh, It isn't likely that you'll be beheaded for following Jesus, but it will cost you something. Uh, For instance, it could cost you in relationships. For some, it will cost you relationships. Maybe it's with your families. If you're a first-generation Christian and your families don't follow Christ, it it could cost you a family. For others who are single, it could severely limit your dating pool, saying, I'm only going to date and marry a follower of Christ. But if it costs John his head, why wouldn't it cost you a relationship? For others of you, it could cost you at your places of work to to have to get ahead in some workplaces. It it can mean fighting dirty. It can mean you have to work seven days a week. Following Christ in the workplace could cost you a promotion. But if it costs John his head, why wouldn't it cost you your job? You know, growing up a non-negotiable in my home was that we didn't play sports on Sundays. It's one of those hard rules that you have as a kid that you don't understand, but you kind of grow up and you're thankful for in your life. And uh, there would be tennis tournaments and basketball tournaments that I would be in, and we'd be playing games, championship games on Sundays, and I just would not show up. And it was really confusing to the players on my team. It was really confusing to my coaches. And uh, I like to say we lost them all because I wasn't playing. We'll stick with that story for this uh, purpose right now. Um, But I just didn't play. And you know what? Standing here after living through it, I'm actually fine for that. If anything, you know what I, I learned? I learned a deep passion for worshiping with God's people on Sunday. That that's actually the most important place for me to be on a Sunday is with you all. But if it cost John his head, why wouldn't it cost us a Sunday morning? Following Jesus is costly. Now, as Paul Miller puts it in his book called The J-Curve, this is part of the daily dying to self and being raised with Christ that following Jesus demands of us. Following Jesus is costly. But you might wonder at this point, with with a price this high, Who would want to follow him? (laughs) If it's going to cost you everything that you have, why would you want to follow Jesus? Well, simply because of the gospel. Because what we gain in Christ supersedes any cost that you will endure in this life. Because you know who else died by the hands of Herod? Jesus. Right? King Herod, he finished the job of his father who tried to kill him as a child. 
as he examined Jesus and sent him back to Pilate saying, crucify this man. Only unlike John, Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? You know, when the disciples of John the Baptist go to retrieve the body of John here, you know what they find? They find his body. We see here in the last verse, and when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. But when the disciples of Jesus do likewise, when they go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, his body is gone. Jesus is alive. And in the resurrection of Christ, Jesus promises us resurrection too. Right, that every pain that we've endured will be paid back a hundredfold upon a hundredfold. Right, our greatest fears have been actually transformed into our greatest gains. This is what Paul talks about too, right? To die is to gain. Do you really believe this? If Jesus can transform the greatest costs into the greatest gains, then what cost of yours can he not turn into a gain? What cost of yours can he not turn into gain, into glory? And by the end of this, John is actually in everlasting glory. He's faced the greatest cost that he could ever imagine. And even his greatest cost, his very death, is turned into gain. If this is true, if this is what is gained by following Christ, then the worst thing that could happen for you is glory. Think about that. The worst thing that could happen to you is glory. That's not so bad, is it? And if death and pain or whatever cost you bear in this life because of following Christ is turned to gain in the resurrection, then what cost is there really? What a comfort and joy this should be for us to know that the resurrected Savior is with you, transforming your pains and your conflicts into gain. This should give us great courage to live in this world, to live by faith, to love our neighbors well, to, to preach the gospel to those around us, to those in our lives, knowing that no matter what gets taken from me, living by faith is the greatest thing that you could ever do in your life. May we be a church and a people who follow Christ vigorously, who count the costs and still with joy in our hearts endure whatever comes our way. With joy in our hearts, believing that our greatest pains have been transfigured in the resurrection of Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful and gracious Father in heaven. What a, what a wonderful thing it is to know, to be comforted by the fact that our greatest fears, our greatest pains have been overcome by the cross. Help us to be a people who can step out in faith. Who can step into the world wherever you've called us. And know that following your kingdom, no matter what comes, is always worth it. Because the gain is always greater than any loss that we endure on this side of eternity. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen our hearts. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.